What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hello, baby. Welcome to the Smart People Podcast. Sit back, grab a drink, tune in your brain. Ask not what your country can do for you. This nation will rise up. Hello, my favorite podcast listeners. Welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Today we have a super special episode for you. And it's super special not only because our guest is awesome... He's written 13 books, and every single one has become a bestseller. But we also have a guest host in the interview. I wasn't able to make it for once. Usually, I'm the one running this shenanigan. So Matt Rowley filled in for me. He did a great job, and he was very interested in what our guest had to say. So without further ado, let me explain to you what we cover on this week's episode. This week, we interviewed Seth Godin. And as I already mentioned, he is a very prominent author His books have been translated into more than 30 languages. He writes about the post-industrial revolution, the the way ideas spread, marketing in general. American Way magazine calls him America's greatest marketer, and his blog is perhaps the most popular in the world by a single individual. So, fantastic guy. Roach, I got to say, you and Matt did a great job. I know you covered mostly his last book, Lynchpin, not his most recent book, Poke the Box. But I guess I just wanted to get your take on how things went on the interview. I think it went really well. I think Matt did an awesome job stepping in for you. It's not easy coming into the situation, not recording an episode before. And I think he did a really good job and the listeners will enjoy it. But Seth was awesome. Didn't mean to cut you off there. Is my job going to be in jeopardy anytime soon? No, it's safe. Okay, just checking. It is safe. So Seth's last book, Lynchpin, is a lot about creativity 
and creating your art and moving forward with with your passions, which we tend to focus on with this podcast because that's what we did and we were looking for ways to continue to do that in our life. Right. What do you think his best piece of advice regarding following passions or even being creative? What, what did he have to say that you liked? He mentions that people need to transfer your passion to your job as opposed to finding a job that matches your passion. And to me, that made a lot of sense because you and I have talked about, oh, what are we passionate about? What do we want to do? Whereas, you know, you might not be able to find a job in that. But if you have a job and you're passionate about certain things, you should focus on those things that make you happy within your position. Even if you're not paid to do that, you can find ways to follow your passion still. For example, he was saying, you know, there's there's been plenty of people who have created jobs within their position. So if somebody is a a market research person, and they're very passionate about the way that people interact with their product, they might start reaching out to their customers on their own and just holding these dialogues with them. And that might be the thing at the end of the day that they're happy about, that they feel like they're giving back to these people. He mentions coffee baristas that have been doing their job for 10, 15 years. And some of them do this because they enjoy coming in every day, talking to somebody and making them feel good. They're getting paid eight, nine, ten dollars an hour to do menial tasks, but they're extremely happy in their job because they get to sit and talk to people all day and find out, you know, how other people's lives are. Well, you consider it menial. I personally don't know how my grande skim double mocha frappuccinos. I don't know how they're made, but hey, fair enough. <laughs> I guess we'll we'll let you guys go ahead and listen to Seth. Take away what you'd like. You got John's take on it. Hopefully you enjoy it. And while he's giving all the speeches about marketing and sales and all that, don't forget, we are trying to market through our Amazon widget on our page, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Go check us out at the top of the page. You can click on the banner. Anything you order through Amazon, use that link. Gives us a little kickback, no cost to you. That's how you can help support us, help keep us going. I'll let you go. Here is Seth. Seth, would you mind taking a moment just to give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and explain to them how you got to where you are today? Okay. Well, I got to where I am today by failing relentlessly uh, and uh, then failing some more. I was started my entrepreneurial career when I was 15 or 14 uh, in high school, and uh, the high school band uh, needed me to help them raise the money. The teachers went out on strike uh, in my brand new high school, which had no cafeteria. So I, of course, called up from the Yellow Pages, an ice cream sandwich company, had them deliver $20 worth of ice cream sandwiches. And uh, I sold them all that afternoon uh, to a room full of 400 hungry teenagers. Took all the money I made and bought $80 worth of ice cream sandwiches the next day. And by the end of the week, I'd sold like $1,000 worth of ice cream sandwiches. Oh, wow. And the thing about it was that it never occurred to me that what I had done was unusual in any way. Um, and that sort of led to this fearless streak of uh, starting things, uh, figuring out why they worked or didn't work, and then doing it again. Uh, when I was in college, I co-founded uh, what became the largest student-run business in the country. Uh, we had about 25 divisions. We sold birthday cakes and bagels door to door, and we had a travel agency and a ticket agency and a coffee shop. 
and I was wrecked after that because there was no way I was going to be able to go get a job working for some Fortune 500 engineering company, which is ostensibly what I was trained to do. Anyway, fast forward a little bit. I went to business school. Uh, then I was uh, really fortunate to get a really great job working at a tiny company that got bigger than tiny called Spinnaker Software. And I was the 30th employee. Uh, I launched a bunch of products there with people like Michael Crichton and Ray Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, and after that, I realized it was going to be very hard for me to work for anyone again. So in 86, I went out on my own. I became a book packager. Uh, we developed about a book a month for 10 years. Uh, along the way, I did an internet company uh, that grew pretty fast, sold that uh, to Yahoo. And ever since then, I've uh, been on my own. Uh, writing about a book a year. Uh, I think I'm on bestseller number 13. And I also run an internet company called squidoo.com. One of the books that I wanted to talk to you about was your book, Lynchpin. And funny story about this book, it actually showed up on my doorstep through Amazon. Turns out a buddy of mine had sent it to me saying that this book could help push me in the right direction, help motivate me. I started reading it and the I still remember the exact second that I knew I'd be completely invested in this book. And it's when I came across the sentence that you said that we need to stop complying with the system and draw our own map. Now this turned out to be a very simple but powerful message for me. Can you explain a little bit about what the system is, how it broke down and why we need to draw our own map? Sure. Um, the system has only been around for 100 years. Uh, 100 years ago, uh, just about everyone on Earth made a living as a farmer, uh, and factories were just coming into their own. But factories, mass production, uh, interchangeable parts, this notion that uh, owning a machine could add productivity is brand new, and it brings with it enormous benefits. Basically, the reason that almost everyone in the world is rich, uh, certainly... Everyone in, in the United States has more resources and, and more leverage than the King of France did 300 years ago. Uh, and, and the reason is that productivity explodes when you add machines and a system. That the productivity of 400 people working together to create insurance uh, or make cars or um, run a yoga studio is enormous. And this Productivity led to wealth, and this wealth led to an addiction to the productivity. And what we built was a system that says, uh, if you comply, if you do what you're told, if you fit in, color inside the lines, and are a cog in the machine, we will reward you. And so what the system said is, if you are a cog in the system, we will take care of you. We will give you a job for life. Uh, you will be respected in your community, you'll be able to buy a new car every two or three years, and you'll be able to send your kids to school so they can do what you did. And we built it deeply, deeply into our psyche that that is the right way to be. And just in the last 10 years, the system has failed. And it has failed not just for a little while, but forever. And I can explain in detail why it failed, but the short version is that we can't keep growing productivity because machines can't get significantly more efficient. And mass marketing, which was the counterpoint to the system, it doesn't work without mass marketing. You can't have mass products if you can't sell them. Mass marketing fell apart because of the internet and clutter and a whole bunch of other factors. So what we ended up with is a new regime, and that regime rewards not people who are compliant to the system, but in fact the opposite. 
It rewards linchpins. It rewards individuals who are willing to stand up and do something different and worth seeking out. And what those people have in common is not that they are following the map of Stanley Kaplan and the State University of New York at Albany and public school and compliance and the insurance and the unemployment office. What those people have in common is they are drawing their own map. They are figuring out what to do next. And if I could just add one aside on my little rant here, Portugal in 1600 made it a significant crime, a felony, to share their map of the world. That the map that the imperial powers kept in the king's castle was so valuable that sharing it was a crime. And what is going on now is that there's a scramble, all these people looking for a dummy's guide, for a step-by-step -step approach, for the 12 things to do and the nine things to do and the six steps to follow. And what I am saying, much to their chagrin, is there is no map. And the minute someone writes down a map, that map isn't worth anything. If there is, you know, a 10-step thing to do something, then everybody would be the same and average, I guess, in that sense. Yep. Exactly. Now, Seth, what do you what do you say to those who you know who understand the concept but don't necessarily uh, have the confidence or belief that they were born with with those skill sets? You know, because that, that definitely takes a unique person who's who's willing to stand out and become the linchpin. I know you talk about that some in your book, but what are what are some simple things that people can you know really take to heart and and use as practical advice to to developing those skills? Well, the first thing to do is get out of the habit of talking about unique people. Because there are no unique people when it comes to being able to make art. Everyone is capable of doing this. The only thing the successful artists of our world have in common is that they are successful. Right? The only thing that Paul McCartney has in common with Michael Dell, has in common with Steve Jobs, has in common with Bill Gates, has in common with Neil Young, has in common with Alison Krauss, is that they're successful. And it doesn't matter where you were born, and it doesn't matter where you went to school, and it doesn't matter who your parents were. It matters how you're going to deal with your fear. And society has been amplifying your fear since you were born, right? We have expressions like, is everything okay? What a bullshit thing to say. Everything is never okay. I, I, couldn't, I could not uh, agree with you more. Yeah. So why do, we I hate even why do we even ask that question? And so, you know, true leaders, when they come home at the end of the day and someone says, how was your day? They never say fine because what it means to be a leader, what it means to be someone who draws a map is that you are constantly failing and you're constantly confronting things that don't work the way they're supposed to. And some people think that that's an exception and we have to survive it to get back to normal. And my argument is that's the real thing and that is normal. And the exceptional thing is a few minutes in a row where everything goes the way you hope it will. In the book, you mentioned fear, and more specifically, the fear of art. And for humans, it's the fear of being laughed at or the fear of standing up for something, standing out for a cause or whatever it may be. Why do you think we were ingrained with this natural fear, and what can we do to overcome it? Part of the fear is genetic, and the genetic part comes from our amygdala, our primitive lizard brain. And that's the part that a dog has that doesn't like it when you stare it down. That's the part that a wild animal has that makes it run away. That human beings are hardwired to not be ostracized, made fun of, stoned to death with rocks, thrown out of the village, eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. All of those things helped us survive. What we have put on top of that, though, is this cultural norm 
that says that if you don't wear the same jeans as everyone else does in eighth grade, you will be made fun of and you will never be popular again. And that what we've overlaid on top of that is the entire school system, which is about passing a test instead of learning how to solve a problem. And so I've never been able to get rid of the prehistoric stuff and I probably never will. But what I can do is use it as a compass. What I can do is say, when the part of my brain that freaks out is freaking out, I'm probably onto something. But if I'm doing work and everything is calm in the back of my head, I'm probably not pushing myself hard enough. That's a great point. You know, there's a lot of days that I know I come home from work or you know, other friends of mine come home from work and you know, I feel like everything went well. And, you know, when I really sit down and I, I go to sleep at night, I'm like, you know what, something's wrong because everything did go so well. And I think that's a key point that I really latch on to that if there's not you know, this sense of fear and this sense of, of urgency that I guess couples couples fear sometimes when you're trying to, to tackle, you know, business objectives, that it's probably not going right. You know, you need to have that sense of fear in the back of your mind to keep you on, you know, have that sense of urgency and keep you on point. Right. And what I'm arguing is that that's actually an economic function, that artists who copy other artists don't succeed because there's surplus of copycats and a scarcity of original voices. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about artists, I'm not talking about painters. I'm talking about anyone who does human work that is designed to touch another human being in a right. way that makes a difference. One of the things that I've noticed is that I consider myself a procrastinator. And you point out in your book that some people can't push through the fear of completion unless they create a greater fear of failure. Right. Is it a fair assumption that procrastination is really a common byproduct of fear? Well, I, I think we see it everywhere. You know, let's look at the endless emergency of poverty. Uh, it's easy to raise a billion dollars to save a whole bunch of people from dying and hard to raise a million people to get better seeds sold so they don't have to worry about dying. That we tend to respond to emergencies. And I, in this particular case, was trying to get at the emergencies we create for ourselves. And just about everyone does it. You know, we, we do things like uh, refuse to get ready to, for the party until just before and end up being late, right? Uh, we uh, push and push and push uh, to work on trivia as opposed to digging deep and doing the hard work long before it's due. And as a result, things get rushed. You know, Lauren Michaels from Saturday Night Live uh, is a legend, and what people don't understand of his genius is this. Saturday Night Live in 25 years has never missed going on at 11.30 on Saturday night, right? And if you think about it, it's live, and it always happens. They never broadcast dead air. And doing that week in and week out without having a nervous breakdown is an act of heroism, right? Because what you do is you say, this is my job. My job is to ship great work every Saturday. And once you've signed up for that, you figure out how to use your Tuesdays well. You don't sit around doing nothing until Friday night and figure, oh, I'll just ask for an extension. You mentioned that real artists ship. Can you elaborate on that? Specifically, you mentioned the example of Lorne Michaels and Saturday Night Live and how they produce a show every Saturday, no matter what they have ready. And a lot of times it's not the best show, but they're still being creative and still putting something out there for all their fans. Sure. I mean, and the, the, the real artistship is a quote from Steve Jobs. He was uh, a couple of days away from shipping the Mac. And one of the programmers was wanted to just uh, 
polish a piece of code. And he said, look, Steve, this is art, and I need to make it really polished. And Steve grabbed the software out of his hand and said, real art is ship. And they put it in the world. And if we look at the reviews of every Apple product and every Apple software release, they are filled with criticism that it is not polished enough or perfect enough or right for the market yet. And that is what artists do, is they go for it, they don't try to hide by pretending they're trying to make it perfect. Because perfect is meaningless if no one sees it. You know, the killer bees and the cone heads and weekend update and all those other things, none of them were perfect, and yet they're part of our culture. Right. If you strive for perfection, that might just be the fear of actually putting forth your your art because you're sitting there waiting to have it be perfect, whereas it's right. And I'm not even I'm not going to let you get away with might. I would say it always is. Fair enough. I wanted to talk to you about how the internet has changed learning and access to knowledge. You mentioned that you no longer need to go to a specific school to learn things. You have access and a wide variety of of knowledge out there on the internet, whether you want to learn coding or whether you want to learn web design or anything else out there. Can you elaborate on the amount of knowledge that's now available to us? Well, let's go back a little bit further. You know, what's 18 18 squared? Uh, What's the capital of Illinois? Uh, What's Planck's constant? You know, we should spend zero time teaching those facts to kids. (laughs) Right. Because what we're not doing when we're busy doing that is we're not teaching them public speaking. We're not teaching them conceptual problem solving. We're not teaching them how to look up Planck's constant. Uh, We're not teaching them sophisticated ways to become lifelong learners. We're not giving them the habit of reading a book a week. Uh, You know, a 20-year-old who reads a book a week is going to be 700 books into the system, which is way more, like 500 books more than the typical kid who's 20 years old. so what we do is we confuse ourselves by thinking that we need to teach kids all these facts because access to facts used to be limited. Uh, if you end up, after a dozen years of school, knowing how to do lifelong learning, then teaching yourself uh, how to program, you know, how to get a, a four on the AP computer science course test without taking one class isn't particularly hard. Um, you know, finding somebody uh, through Stack Overflow or somewhere else who will help you when you get stuck with a particular you know, testing hierarchy in Ruby isn't particularly hard. What's hard is seeing yourself as the kind of person who could teach themselves Ruby and seeing yourself as the kind of person, as David did, who could invent Ruby and invent a whole programming language and put it in the world. You know, we don't teach kids at all that they have the power to go do that. And so what I'm really worried about is that we change the rules of what success is, but we're not teaching anybody how to be organized for that world. Seth, I'm not going to lie. That, that's pretty powerful stuff. And it relates a lot to some debates that, that John and I have actually had about the fundamental education you get as you come through the system, as you relate to it, compared to somebody who, who would not be getting you know, public ed- or private education as they come up. And if you compare two individuals of the like age, say we'll pick 25 years of age for, the, for this example, one that, that grew up through the system of, of education and one that did not, you know, and, and just pursued their own means of, of learning, at what rate, how could you compare their, you know, their problem-solving abilities at that point in time? 
And I think one of the big things that, that intrigues me is this, this um, concept of a, uh, collective intelligence that's growing over you know, the past few years with sites such as Wikipedia. And you have you know, large sums of people putting information into uh, one, one location so that multiple people can access to it. You know, can you talk a little bit more about that and you know, how people can you know, evolve those skills themselves outside of the system? And then also uh, how mechanisms of collective intelligence will impact you know, the need for linchpins? Well, I would like to say that I think there's collective data and maybe even collective information, but I don't think there's collective intelligence. Uh, I think that uh, what we need to do is think about what it is to be educated. I was in Katali, Kenya a couple weeks ago, and there's no question that the typical person there doesn't have the book smarts that someone growing up in the Cleveland school system has. Uh, but in both cases, I think it's irrelevant. What I'm looking for is uh, data smarts. I'm looking for the smarts of knowing what to do with the information that's now being given to you for free, knowing what to do with the opportunities you have. And if you are raised believing that you are stupid or you are raised believing that you do not have access to the market or access to the power to do something about it, then it's almost certain that you won't ever overcome that. But if you are raised to believe that there's all these doors that are opening really fast and you can go through them because the cost of being wrong is so low, then I think that's where we're going to see the people who choose to make an impact in the world. Uh, I'm not sure that there's anything written down that says that person can make an impact and that person can't, other than the story we're telling ourselves. I wanted to shift the conversation real quick. There's a point in the book that I really wanted to thank you for because you definitely opened my eyes up to something, and that is focused around Twitter. You mentioned that there's always another tweet to be read and responded to, and this causes you know that endless cycle of something never being closed and definitely lowers one's productivity. In, in my example, do you see this as a fear of completion that I may have? I think that's part of it. What's really happening here, I think, is, you know, I, I'm guilty too. There are days I've gone home and realized that all I did all day was answer email. And uh, the reason that that's so seductive is email is a small, solvable problem. 30 seconds after you start an email, you have finished it and you can declare victory. Uh, you've probably responded to that email in a way that doesn't frighten you and in a way that gets you props from the person you answered. Well, that works fine if you do it for five minutes a day. But if you do that or Twitter for eight or ten minute hours a day, now it's the worst kind of procrastination. Because at least with real procrastination, if you just sit at your desk and do zero, it's clear to you and to everyone else you did nothing. But right. Twitter is this socially acceptable form of procrastination where you can be proud of yourself that you have 900 Twitter followers and that you took care of them all day. Yeah, but did you do anything scary? And did you do anything that we would miss if you were gone? And did you do anything um, that leaves a legacy, even a legacy of just a week? The answer is probably no. That if you go back in the Twitter timeline and read a, a day of tweets, or, you know, name whatever prolific Twitterer you want, in, out of context, they're worthless, right? That, this is not the equivalent of Glenn Gould sitting down and playing Bach on the piano, right? This is not the equivalent of David Mamet writing Speed the Plow. 
it's a totally inane waste of time that's hiding from doing work that's extremely provocative and that's going to get you in trouble. One of the biggest takeaways that I took from your book was the quote that you mentioned, transferring your passion to your job is a lot easier than finding a job that matches your passion. I know that myself and some of my friends aren't happy in the jobs or careers that we have right now, and we've been trying to figure out what it is we want to do. And I, I believe this is truly great advice for those of us not happy in our careers. Yeah, I mean, you know, let me tell you the story of Robbie Nash. Robbie Nash was a, uh, a surfing kid in Hawaii, and there were lots of those, right? And then they invented uh, the windsurfer. Now, obviously, he has no genetic predisposition to windsurfing because it hadn't even been invented when he was born. And yet, three weeks into it, he was the best windsurfer in the world, and it would be easy for him to describe that this was his passion. Well, how could that be, right? Are you saying that passion comes from what you discover after you get good at it? So in fact, Robbie Nash's passion is being good at something. That's his passion. And he probably has an adrenaline uh, hook fix as well. But in general, you can't say that my passion is completely tied up with, oh, I only make iPad apps. I, I, iOS is my passion. and I can't possibly do that thing. Well, that's ridiculous, right? And so I think that what we need to get to the heart of what passion means. And I think that what passion means is some very primitive, basic things that make us happy. Things like being accepted, solving interesting problems, standing up in front of other people, and getting positive feedback, helping people anonymously. Those are the kinds of things that we can argue are our passions. You mentioned that you love giving free advice. So I'm going to ask you something selfishly. Well, I just want to, I really need to clarify that. Okay. No one has brought this up until two weeks ago, even though the book came out a while ago. <laughs> what I wrote is, needs to be in context here. When people send me an uh, email saying, you know, please solve this business problem for me, I never answer it because it doesn't scale, right? I can't do that all day long. What I was saying is, if I'm sitting with you at a cocktail party, we don't have to talk about sports. We can talk about what I write about because I love this thing. This is my passion. I've adopted it as my passion. And I'm always sort of stunned when you're sitting there, you know, with a dermatologist at a party and the dermatologist says to the guy next to him, no, I'm not going to tell you what that thing on your hand is. Well, like, do you love what you do or not? And I get the fact that it's annoying to have people uh, talk to you all day long like you're at work. But the heart of what I was trying to say there is that even things that feel like they should just be workaday jobs, like thinking about how marketing works, can be things that can be objects of passion. So there you go. I just hope that your listeners don't start sending me email because I promise I'm not going to write back to it. Don't worry. I'll put a disclaimer in here saying that Seth won't answer all questions on, on every single topic out there. I do have a selfish question for you, though. So when Chris and I started the podcast, we had a decent amount of success because we were put on the front page of iTunes. We got a lot of new subscribers. Things were looking good. We were getting way more downloads than we thought we were. And now we're just trying to figure out how we keep growing our community. And do you recommend us to just keep releasing content no matter how many people are listening and just put something out there that we believe in? Well, actually, I, th I think it's more complicated than that. I'm going to start by saying, why do you want it to grow? 
That's like, I mean that's how many how many question. listeners how many listeners before you're happy? Why is why is more the better answer here? That's the first thing I would say. Like I've stopped trying to get new people to read my books. Right. Uh, there's a lot of people in the world, 99.9% who have never read any of my books or my blog, and that's okay. I don't work for them. I work for the other million or two million people who read my stuff. And as soon as I stop trying to do a dance for strangers and instead try to sing along with my friends, uh, my work changes, and I think it changes for the better. So a lot of people are stuck in this endless cycle to get bigger when maybe they should just instead think about what would, what's the point of the work and why are they doing it. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, I did a blog post a few years ago called First Ten, and my argument is that if you choose to grow, the way to grow is to tell ten people uh, your idea. And if it's really good, they'll tell their friends. And then they'll tell their friends. And the next thing you know, you have a lot of people. Uh, this notion that you need to yell your idea to a thousand people just to get started doesn't make any sense to me. If your idea isn't good enough for 10 people to be amazed, then maybe you need a better idea. That's awesome advice. Thank you so much. Well, I told you I only wanted to keep you on the line for 25, 30 minutes, and we're right about that time. So I wanted to make sure that you got all your information out to our listeners. Do you want to go ahead and plug your other books in your website? Well, the, the short version is uh, I don't wake up in the morning trying to sell more books. I write books if people want them. Mm-hmm. My, blog is, my blog is free. If you type Seth into Google, there it is. Uh, there's 4,000 posts to read. Uh, my most recent book uh, is called Poke the Box, and it's short and cheap, and you can get it from Amazon. Uh, but mostly what I'd like people to do is pick themselves and figure out how they can do their art in the world and, and make the difference that they were born to make. I truly appreciate it, Seth. You've been awesome. Your books are amazing. Thank you so, so much for being on our show. It's my pleasure, guys. Have fun. Welcome back, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the interview with Seth. We decided for the outro we were going to give Matt a call and try and catch up with him, see what he thought of the whole podcasting experience. Matt Rowley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christopher Stout. No problem, <laughs> So uh, what'd you think, man? How was it? It was actually um, surprisingly <laughs> enlightening, I guess. Um, uh, go figure. Whoa, hold on, so, hold on, hold on. Surprisingly? Well, I guess I guess what what surprised me the most is that you know Seth is is a normal guy, you know, and although he's he's a very intelligent person, he's actually just a just a human being, uh, just like us. And so when we got on the phone with him, he's he's very personable, and and I think that just goes in parallel with a lot of the other guests you've had as well. I mean, I have to admit I haven't listened to all the podcasts, but the, but the ones that I have. It's very cool that these guys are, are and and women are, are down to earth and um, willing to to just take some time to talk to you guys. That's a really cool point, actually. It's it's a good perspective because I know that when we first started doing this, literally every phone call we made, I was kind of nervous, like super nervous. How is this person who is a doctor or PhD or author or whatever going to speak to us? And you kind of forget about that along the way because you get used to it, but. It is a, a cool thing. Everyone you talk to is at least appears to be, they might be good actors, but appears to be happy to be on the show and talk with us and share their point of view. So 
that's pretty cool. We actually received a comment on Facebook recently stating almost that same exact thing where when these people sit down to talk to us, they seem like normal human beings in our conversation. And I agree. I, I think it's awesome. It helps the flow of the interview go well and it makes it a all around good listening experience if I if I may boast just a little bit. You can boast. <laughs> Matt, you're a pretty uh, business minded kind of guy. What did, did you have anything that you took away from the interview that kind of stuck with you, you know, that made you think, hey, this this podcasting thing's pretty cool? From a business perspective, I mean, I think the biggest thing that you hear a lot of entrepreneurs as, as well as um, successful business guys, I mean, and obviously Seth Seth is, say that it, it takes uh, a lot of failures to make a success. And, you know, that was one of the first things he said when, when we started the interview is that, you know, he failed again and again and again before he was successful. And, you know, I think that's something that, that you know, from a business perspective, you have to take to heart and realize that when you venture out and, do, and put yourself at risk and you put yourself out there, that you are going to fail and you're probably going to fail more often than not. But once you, you learn from those failures and you move forward, you can you know, you're eventually going to get a hit a venture that, that makes sense and, and makes you successful. That's why we're going to start a company one day soon, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, Matt, so uh, you think you can fill in for me or probably Roach a little more often in the future? Absolutely, man. I mean, it was it was not only a fun experience, it was something that I definitely learned from and look forward to participating whenever you guys give me the chance. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again for uh, helping me out here. And to all the listeners, make sure to tune in next week. We have a special guest. We're going to talk to you about how Nintendo conquered the world. So come back next week, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.